Um, for those of you who weren't here yesterday, uh, one of the things I, I do, I'm doing is just doing some very short 10-minute presentations just to sort of fill us between the, uh, the, re the real talks. Um, but sort of try to indicate some areas which you might want to look at or consider if you are sort of working in this field. Uh, and hopefully, I'm going to sort of pull these together in the, in the talk later on, which is, again is a short talk, uh, embarrassingly, on David Jones and show you how... Some of the things I've been mentioning can, you can apply to a poet, a single poet. So I just wanted to say a bit about manuscripts. You've seen uh, a lot of images of manuscripts on the screens in the presentations, and it's very gratifying to see that they've been drawn from the online archive, which I'll say a bit uh, towards the end. But it's, it's quite interesting that in this particular field, for a 20th century uh, discipline, uh, scholars do often have to go back to manuscripts. Now... As a medievalist by training, that's something which we work with all the time. But when you move into the more modern period, you actually tend to be looking at uh, printed material and working from that, unless you're working on a, a particularly uh, troublesome writer like Joyce. But in this field, many scholars do go back to manuscripts. Um, so I thought I would just say a bit about that and show you some manuscripts and sort of like indicate why you might want to do that. Um, Strictly speaking, a manuscript is a handwritten document, uh, but that's not the case. Although we will see many handwritten documents, it is also used synonymously with anything that basically isn't the final printed edition. So we, we throw in sort of talks about primary and secondary source and bring it all together in documentary source material. But for the most part, what I'm talking about here are the documents which we would collect together, which would lead up to the final printed edition uh, in some cases, and not all in every case, but also documents which might provide contextual information about when we're studying this period and studying the poet themselves. Um, there are some terminologies around paleography is when you look at what's written on the page and how it's written, the handwriting, and in medieval times you would be looking at scribal changes. That is still important, as I will show you an example uh, later on. Code ecology is how a book is formed. Uh, now, you may think, well, that's really got nothing to do with it. You know, books are just printed. But in many studies, or some, sorry, some studies in this field, also the evidence is in there in the compilation or the physical structure of the page itself. Um, I think it was John, was it, who you, when you were looking at the Owen manuscripts, the watermarks on the pages were particularly invaluable to you or helpful. Uh, and whilst I'm on that, John's uh, superb edition of Wilfred Owen's poems, volume two, shows you how scholars can attempt to replicate and show you what is on the manuscript in a, what we call a diplomatic or semi-diplomatic way. So that if you don't have access, and particularly in, in the days when John was doing his edition, you couldn't really get access to these manuscripts unless you went to the British Library and it was on display or you had a reader's pass. Um, you know, you were, you were at least beginning to see how the page was structured, even though it was one step removed. Um, so let me show you a few manuscripts. Now this, you may think, is not a manuscript, big words, uh, by grades, uh, but it is something we would look at. It's a tight script, um, uh, but it is something we would look at because it might show you the creation of the poem uh, in various stages. Uh, this is perhaps more the sort of thing which we, we come across and look at again and again. Hopefully you can see that. The lighting is very good. But again, we're seeing a handwritten document here of a draft or a preliminary draft of a piece of work. Now, when you start to assemble these together, it is, of course, very important because it helps you when you put things together. This, I would say, is also something we would look at. Whilst it is a, a printed document of, of Gurney's poems, um, you can see Gurney working on this, and, and Philip may talk about this later, in the sense that he was constantly going back over what you might think was the authoritative text 
and reworking it or commenting on it. So again, we would be looking at information like this. And even this, this is uh, Wilfred Owen's uh, medical report, which I believe was the one which uh, sent him then to Craig Lockhart. But again, this is the type of document we would want to see because it's providing valuable information, if, if you like, um, a guy writing a biography of, of Owen. Uh, so again, sort of things you might come across. Now, why would you really want to do this? Um, well, first of all, some poets were not published in their lifetime. Uh, Owen, uh, with the exception of, uh, I think it's four poems, wasn't. Uh, so what we are basing our analysis on, when you've read Owen, is on subsequent decisions by people who have worked from the manuscripts, the editors, which is important to note because you are, of course, at liberty to go back and challenge those decisions. Some poems remain unpublished, and again, Philip may pick that up because uh, Gurney is, is a good example of that. I think where I came from this and why I found this very interesting, it allows you to investigate the creative writing process. So when you can see five or six drafts of a poem and you can see the poet changing or struggling over particular terms, you begin to focus in on what is important to the poet and why they made those changes. And also, I think, when you look at a manuscript, it provides you with information which may be not there in all the prose written about the life of the poet. Just seeing the physical object can provide you with contextual information about the conditions under which the poem was written. And I'll, again, I'll show you examples of that. But just to pick up the unpublished poet, uh, this, is, this is picking up Owen. So if we took uh, the three editions in the order, you can see gradually... Owen's poetry was beginning to emerge, uh, Day-Lewis uh, bringing the corpus up to 80 poems, and it's expanded since then. But you can see, so not all of uh, Owen's poetry was released in the Sassoon edition or indeed in the Blunden edition. Um, but let me give you an example just to show you a bit about the creative writing process. Now, this is a poem you may... It may look familiar because it's kind of sort of familiar... But it's given the title, Move Him Into the Sun. It's a Wilfred Owen poem, Move Him Into the Sun, and then the first line, Move Him Into the Sun. Now, for those of you who know, that was not the end title of the poem that we get to. Neither was frustration, although he is beginning to struggle with this. Uh, and as you can see, he's working on some sort of key factors here. Picking up from the last conversation, I find it interesting that originally he wrote about the poet being in Wales. And he hangs on to that in one or two or the three of the variants. Uh, so here we have the remaining two variants, so the poem Futility is what we know it now as. And uh, you may think, oh, well, this must be the final version, and this is obviously a version which Owen didn't like, and he just crossed it through, as you can see. But what I find it interesting here, I look at this as a medievalist, she used to work with manuscripts, is that the line here, think how it wakes the seeds, think how it, he finally puts in it as an afterthought. Now, to me, putting those two together, I would say that precedes that but maybe that's not the case. Now, I'm not giving you the answer here, but what I'm showing you is that you start to put these things together and start to sort of like try and... It's like a detective puzzle when you're working with manuscripts. This is an example which, uh, for Anthem for Doomed Youth, which uh, I would recommend you go to John's um, uh, biography of Owen because he takes you through these five drafts. Uh, and it's, it's, it's extremely interesting. But what I'm noting here is when I talk about paleography and scribal hands... Uh, is there changes on this manuscript made by Sassoon? So as you, you were Anthem for Dead Youth, and then we get to Anthem for Doomed Youth, etc. And you can see the working through here and the different handwriting there, which is Sassoon's, as he's making corrections and trying to sort of the master-pupil role of, of, the, of the relationship, which, of course, 
eventually gets reversed. Even though Sassoon made that disparaging comment. <laughs> um, this we've seen before, uh, Owen's table of contents. Um, not regularly published, but it is available. And again here, so a manuscript which begins to show what Owen was thinking about his poetry. He hasn't quite, it's, it's, it's rough notes. I believe made a ripen, I presume, when he was working on these things. But yes. So he's scribbling down protest, protest, protest. He's trying to sort of work out his table of contents and a, a methodology, a, a reason behind this. And it's actually very interesting when you read this because I think it, it, it challenges some of the views we have of Owen. Now, what I said about um, contextual information, here we have uh, an Isaac Rosenberg manuscript, but you can see here, this is not the typescript of Graves, who was uh, working on his poetry in relative comfort when he was re revising it later on, or Owen when he was at Ripon, when he was, had that, that opportunity to redo his poetry. This is a scrabble, scribbled on a bit of paper, Salvation Army note paper. As you can see, the folds as it was kept and taken around. And I believe, and Jean may mention this, that this still has mud when you open the manuscript. Is that right? Yeah. From the trenches? Yes. Okay. So, so by seeing that document there, you get a bit more understanding. And I think that adds information to our understanding of what Isaac went through. Um, now, how do you find manuscripts? Well, it's been mentioned a lot. There's the online archive. There are thousands there, not of all the poets that we will discuss, but there's quite a few there, and you can use them and so on. Um, the other thing which I would mention, if you don't, if you don't know this, there's a location register of early ling uh, English literary manuscripts, um, which Reading University put up. Uh, it's, it's a good starting tool. It helps you. Um, so if you, for example, were to search on Brooke, it would give you back a sort of a lot of information about um, Rupert Brooke manuscripts, and then you can follow one of those. And in this case, it tells you that the manuscript is in the BL, British Library, sorry, Department of Manuscripts. So that's also quite useful as well if you want to sort of start finding manuscripts. The main collections which you will come across, um, Oxford, Cambridge, British Library, the Harry Ransom Centre in Texas, New York Public Library, but there are many, many more. If you look on the archive, you will see we had to draw manuscripts from about 20 different collections around the world um, and negotiate with them. So these manuscripts have literally been dispersed to the four corners of the earth. Also, private collections. Now, I don't mean here necessarily people go out and buy manuscripts, although there is that case. There is a market in buying manuscripts. But because of, if you remember that sort of diagram I showed you, the relationships that people, there, was, there were circles which people moved in. This was also at these circles. People would give manuscripts to each other or somehow they'd be bequeathed to them. Um, so a, a good example is of one of the Owen manuscripts. Um, Day Lewis actually held that and it was in his house after he passed away. Jill Bolk and his wife, who's now sadly deceased, had it on the wall. So there was an Owen manuscript there and now I believe it's probably with Daniel Day Lewis. Um, but also there are private, there are manuscripts which were dispersed up to the Sitwells which are now in their private collections, although we're not certain they still know they're there. But those, those are things which we do have to look at. Now, finally, we often get asked, can you use these manuscripts? What can you do with it? And uh, to be boring, it's, it's all to do with copyright as well. So copyright extends in, in UK law 70 years after the writer's death um, or the first date of publication. So if a poem or a manuscript or whatever was published um, and then they died, say, in 1918, you, you, you're, you're absolutely fine. But if it's an unpublished text and it doesn't appear till later, then it's, uh, it's 
is something you would have to work back on. So you have to deal with literary estates as well as the people who hold the manuscripts, which might be a library, to try and get rights, particularly uh, over the unpublished material, but also photographs, etc. But the good news is that all the manuscripts which you see on the archive are free to use for educational purposes, um, not for profit-making. So, it's tea and coffee time, but I will say there is a follow-up exercise. Uh, so again, you want to say there is, a, in the course booklet, there are follow-up exercises. The online in part of the archive, we've, we've put up a little set of tutorials. You can choose which one you want. Dulce, Decorum, S, Strafe, Dead Man's Dump. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for Dead Man's Dump if, unless you're faint of, of the, if you are a faint of heart, because it's quite a, a difficult one. And it allows you to compare manuscripts and create your own edition. Go through exactly the same processes that um, Sassoon, Blunden, Day-Lewis and John had had to do and just have a go at it. 